Section 21 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in May 2021. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. Section 21. Selected Excerpts from Tropical Africa by Henry Drummond, born 1851. One of the most widely read of modern essayists, Henry Drummond, was born at Stirling, Scotland, in 1851. Educated for the ministry, he passed through the universities of Edinburgh and Tübingen and the Free Church Divinity Hall, and after ordination was appointed to a mission chapel at Malta. The beauty and the historic interest of the famous island roused in him a desire for travel, and in the intervals of his professional work, he has made semi-scientific pilgrimages to the Rocky Mountains and to South Africa, as well as lecturing tours to Canada, Australia, and the United States, where his addresses on scientific, religious, and sociological subjects have attracted large audiences. A man of indefatigable industry, he has published many books, the most widely read of these being Natural Law in the Spiritual World, a study of psychological conditions from the point of view of the evolutionist. This work has passed through a large number of editions and been translated into French, German, Dutch and Norwegian. Scarcely less popular were The Greatest Thing in the World, Love, and Pax Vobiscum. In 1894 he published a volume called The Ascent of Man, in which he insists that certain altruistic factors modify the process of natural selection. This doctrine elicited much critical commentary from the stricter sects of the scientists, but the new view commended itself at once to the general reader. The citations here given are selected from Mr. Drummond's book of travels, Tropical Africa, a book whose simplicity and vividness enable the reader to see the dark continent exactly as it is. The Country and Its People From Tropical Africa Nothing could more wildly misrepresent the reality than the idea of one's school days that the heart of Africa is a desert. Africa rises from its three environing oceans in three great tiers, and the general physical geography of these has been already sketched. First, a coastline, low and deadly. Farther in, a plateau, the height of the Scottish Grampians. Farther in still, a higher plateau, covering the country for thousands of miles with mountain and valley. Now, fill in this sketch, and you have Africa before you. Cover the coast belt with rank yellow grass, dot here and there a palm, scatter through it a few demoralized villages, and stock it with the leopard, the hyena, the crocodile, and the hippopotamus. Close the mountainous plateau next, both of them, with endless forests, not grand umbrageous forest like the forests of South America, nor matted jungle like the forests of India, but with thin, rather weak forest, with forest of low trees, 
whose half-grown trunks and scanty leaves offer no shade from the tropical sun. Nor is there anything in these trees to the casual eye to remind you that you are in the tropics. Here and there one comes upon a borassus or fan-palm, a candelabra-like euphorbia, a mimosa aflame with colour, or a sepulchral baobab. A close inspection also will discover curious creepers and climbers, and among the branches strange orchids hide their eccentric flowers. But the outward type of tree is the same as we have at home, trees resembling the ash, the beech, and the elm, only seldom so large, except by the streams, and never so beautiful. Day after day you may wander through these forests, with nothing except the climate to remind you where you are. The beasts, to be sure, are different, but unless you watch for them you will seldom see any, the birds are different, but you rarely hear them, and as for the rocks, they are our own familiar gneisses and granites, with honest basalt dikes boring through them, and leopard-skin lichens staining their weathered sides. Thousands and thousands of miles, then, of vast, thin forest, shadeless, trackless, voiceless, forest in mountain and forest in plain, this is East-Central Africa. The indiscriminate praise, formerly lavished on tropical vegetation, has received many shocks from recent travellers. In Kafir land, South Africa, I have seen one or two forests fine enough to justify the enthusiasm of armchair word painters of the tropics, but so far as the central plateau is concerned, the careful judgment of Mr. Alfred Russell Wallace respecting the equatorial belt in general, a judgment which has at once sobered all modern descriptions of tropical lands and made imaginative people more content to stay at home, applies almost to this whole area. The fairy labyrinth of ferns and palms, the festoons of climbing plants blocking the paths and scenting the forests with their resplendent flowers, the gorgeous clouds of insects, the gaily plumaged birds, the parakeets, the monkeys swimming from his trapeze in the shaded bowers, these are unknown to Africa. Once a week you will see a palm, once in three months the monkey will cross your path, the flowers on the whole are few, the trees are poor, and to be honest, though the endless forest-clad mountains have a sublimity of their own, and though there are tropical bits along some of the mountain streams of exquisite beauty, nowhere is there anything in grace and sweetness and strength to compare with a highland glen. For the most part of the year these forests are jaded and sun-stricken, carpeted with no moss or alchemilla or scented woodruff, the bare trunks frescoed with few lichens, their motionless and unrefreshed leaves drooping sullenly from their sapless boughs. Flowers are there, small and great in endless variety, but there is no display of flowers, no gorgeous show of blossom in the mass, as when the blazing gores and heather bloom at home. The dazzling glare of the sun in the torrid zone has perhaps something to do with this want of colour effect in tropical nature, for there is always about ten minutes just after sunset 
when the whole tone of the landscape changes like magic and a singular beauty steals over the scene this is the sweetest moment of the african day and night hides only too swiftly the home-like softness and repose so strangely grateful to the over-stimulated eye hidden away in these endless forests like birds nests in a wood in terror of one another and of their common foe the slaver are small native villages and here in his virgin simplicity dwells primeval man without clothes without civilization without learning without religion the genuine child of nature thoughtless careless and contented this man is apparently quite happy he has practically no wants one stick pointed makes him a spear two sticks rubbed together make him a fire fifty sticks tied together make him a house the bark he peels from them makes his clothes the fruits which hang on them form his food it is perfectly astonishing when one thinks of it what nature can do for the animal man to see with what small capital after all a human being can get through the world i once saw an african buried according to the custom of his tribe his entire earthly possessions and he was an average commoner were buried with him into the grave after the body were lowered the dead man's pipe then a rough knife then a mud bowl and last his bow and arrows the bowstring cut through the middle a touching symbol that its work was done this was all four items as an auctioneer would say were the whole belongings for half a century of this human being no man knows what a man is till he has seen what a man can be without and be withal a man that is to say no man knows how great man is till he has seen how small he has been once the african is often blamed for being lazy but it is a misuse of words he does not need to work with so bountiful a nature round him it would be gratuitous to work and his indolence therefore as it is called is just as much a part of himself as his flat nose and as little blameworthy as slowness in a tortoise the fact is africa is a nation of the unemployed the east african lake country from tropical africa somewhere in the shire highlands in eighteen fifty nine livingstone saw a large lake lake shirwa which is still almost unknown it lies away to the east and is bounded by a range of mountains whose lofty summits are visible from the hills round blantyre thinking it might be a useful initiation to african travel if i devoted a short time to its exploration i set off one morning accompanied by two members of the blantyre staff and a small retinue of natives steering across country in the direction in which it lay we found two days before seeing the actual water that we were already on the ancient bed of the lake though now clothed with forest the whole district has obviously been under water at a comparatively recent period and the shores of lake shirwa probably reached at one time to within a few miles of blantyre itself on reaching the lake a very aged female chief came to see us 
and told us how, long, long ago, a white man came to her village and gave her a present of cloth. Of the white man, who must have been Livingstone, she spoke very kindly, and indeed, wherever David Livingstone's footsteps are crossed in Africa, the fragrance of his memory seems to remain. The waters of Shiawa are brackish to the taste and undrinkable, but the saltness must have a peculiar charm for game, for nowhere else in Africa did I see such splendid herds of the larger animals as here. The zebra was especially abundant, and so unaccustomed to be disturbed are these creatures that with a little care one could watch their movements safely within a very few yards. It may seem unorthodox to say so, but I do not know if among the larger animals there is anything handsomer in creation than the zebra. At close quarters, his striped coat is all but as fine as the tiger's, while the form and movement of his body are in every way nobler. The gait, certainly, is not to be compared for gracefulness with that of the many species of antelope and deer who nibble the grass beside him, and one can never quite forget that, scientifically, he is an ass, but taking him all in all, this fleet and beautiful animal ought to have a higher place in the regard of man than he has yet received. We were much surprised, considering that this region is almost uninhabited, to discover near the lake shore a native path so beaten, and so recently beaten by multitudes of human feet that it could only represent some trunk route through the continent. Following it for a few miles, we soon discovered its function. It was one of the great slave routes through Africa. Signs of the horrid traffic became visible on every side, and from symmetrical arrangements of small piles of stones and freshly cut twigs, planted semaphore-wise upon the path, our native guides made out that a slave caravan was actually passing at the time. We were in fact between two portions of it, the stones and twigs being telegraphic signals between front and rear. Our natives seemed much alarmed at this discovery, and refused to proceed unless we promised not to interfere, a proceeding which, had we attempted it, would simply have meant murder for ourselves and slavery for them. Next day, from a hilltop, we saw the slave encampment far below, and the ghastly procession marshalling for its march to the distant coast, which many of the hundreds who composed it would never reach alive. Talking of native footpaths leads me to turn aside for a moment to explain to the uninitiated the true mode of African travel. In spite of all the books that have been lavished upon us by our great explorers, few people seem to have any accurate understanding of this most simple process. Some have the impression that everything is done in bullock wagons, an idea borrowed from the Cape, but hopelessly inapplicable to Central Africa, where a wheel at present would be as great a novelty as a polar bear. Others, at the opposite extreme, suppose that the explorer works along solely by compass, making a bee-line for his destination and steering his caravan through the trackless wilderness like a ship at sea. Now, it may be a surprise to the unenlightened to learn that probably no explorer enforcing his passage through Africa has ever, 
for more than a few days at a time been off some beaten track. Probably no country in the world, civilized or uncivilized, is better supplied with paths than this unmapped continent. Every village is connected with some other village, every tribe with the next tribe, every state with its neighbor, and therefore with all the rest. The explorer's business is simply to select from this network of tracks, keep a general direction, and hold on his way. Let him begin at Zanzibar, plant his foot on a native footpath, and set his face towards Tanganyika. In eight months he will be there. He has simply to persevere. From village to village he will be handed on, zigzagging it may be, sometimes, to avoid the impassable barriers of nature or the rarer perils of hostile tribes, but never taking to the woods, never guided solely by the stars, never in fact leaving a beaten track till hundreds and hundreds of miles are between him and the sea, and his interminable footpath ends with a canoe on the shores of Tanganyika. Crossing the lake, landing near some native village, he picks up the thread once more. Again he plods on and on, now on foot, now by canoe, but always keeping his line of villages, until one day, suddenly, he sniffs the sea breeze again, and his faithful foot-wide guide lands him on the Atlantic seaboard. Nor is there any art in finding out these successive villages with their intercommunicating links. He must find them out. A whole army of guides, servants, carriers, soldiers and camp followers accompany him in his march, and this nondescript regiment must be fed. Indian corn, cassava, mawir, beans and bananas, these do not grow wild even in Africa. Every meal has to be bought and paid for in cloth and beads, and scarcely three days can pass without a call having to be made at some village where the necessary supplies can be obtained. A caravan, as a rule, must live from hand to mouth, and its march becomes simply a regulated procession through a chain of markets. Not, however, that there are any real markets. There are neither bazaars nor stores in native Africa. Thousands of the villages through which the traveller eats his way may never have victualled a caravan before. But with the chief's consent, which is usually easily purchased for a showy present, the villagers unlock their larders, the women flock to the grinding stones, and basketfuls of food are swiftly exchanged for unknown equivalents in beads and calico. The native tracks which I have just described are the same in character all over Africa. They are veritable footpaths, never over a foot in breadth, beaten as hard as adamant, and rutted beneath the level of the forest bed by centuries of native traffic. As a rule, these footpaths are marvellously direct. Like the roads of the old Romans, they run straight on through everything, ridge and mountain and valley, never shying at obstacles, nor anywhere turning aside to breathe. Yet, within this general straightforwardness, there is a singular eccentricity and indirectness in detail. Although the African footpath is on the whole a bee-line, no fifty yards of it are ever straight. And the reason is not far to seek. 
If a stone is encountered, no native will ever think of removing it. Why should he? It is easier to walk round it. The next man who comes that way will do the same. He knows that a hundred men are following him. He looks at the stone. A moment and it might be unearthed and tossed aside. But no, he also holds on his way. It is not that he resents the trouble. It is the idea that is wanting. It would no more occur to him that that stone was a displaceable object and that for the general wheel he might displace it than that its feldspar was of the orthoclase variety. Generations and generations of men have passed that stone and it still waits for a man with an altruistic idea. But it would be a very stony country indeed and Africa is far from stony that would wholly account for the aggravating obliqueness and indecision of the African footpath. Probably each four miles, on an average path, is spun out, by an infinite series of minor sinuosities, to five or six. Now, these deflections are not meaningless. Each has some history, a history dating back perhaps a thousand years, but to which all clue has centuries ago been lost. The leading cause probably is fallen trees. When a tree falls across a path, no man ever removes it. As in the case of the stone, the native goes round it. It is too green to burn in his hut. Before it is dry and the white ants have eaten it, the new detour has become part and parcel of the path. The smaller irregularities, on the other hand, represent the trees and stumps of the primeval forest where the track was made at first. But whatever the cause, it is certain that for persistent straightforwardness in the general and utter vacillation and irresolution in the particular, the African roads are unique in engineering. Though one of the smaller African lakes, Shirwa is probably larger than all the lakes of Great Britain put together. With the splendid environment of mountains on three of its sides, softened and distanced by perpetual summer haze, it reminds one somewhat of the great salt lake simmering in the July sun. We pitched our tent for a day or two on its western shore, among a harmless and surprised people who had never gazed on the pallid countenances of Englishmen before. Owing to the ravages of the slaver, the people of Shirva are few, scattered and poor, and live in abiding terror. The densest population is to be found on the small island, heavily timbered with baobabs, which forms a picturesque feature of the northern end. These Wanyasa, or people of the lake, as they call themselves, have been driven away by fear, and they rarely leave their lake dwelling unless under cover of night. Even then they are liable to capture by any men of a stronger tribe who happens to meet them, and numbers who have been kidnapped in this way are to be found in the villages of neighboring chiefs. This is an amenity of existence in Africa that strikes one as very terrible. It is impossible for those at home to understand how literally savage man is a chattel, and how much his life is spent in the mere safeguarding of his main asset, that is, himself. There are actually districts in Africa where three natives cannot be sent on a message, in case two should combine and sell the third before they return. 
white ants from tropical africa the termite or white ant is a small insect with a bloated yellowish-white body and a somewhat large thorax oblong shaped and colored a disagreeable oily brown the flabby tallow-like body makes this insect sufficiently repulsive but it is for quite another reason that the white ant is the most abused of all living vermin in warm countries the termite lives almost exclusively upon wood and the moment a tree is cut or a log sawn for any economical purpose this insect is upon its track one may never see the insect possibly in the flesh for it lives underground but its ravages confront one at every turn you build your house perhaps and for a few months fancy you have pitched upon the one solitary site in the country where there are no white ants but one day suddenly the doorpost totters and lintel and rafters come down together with a crash you look at a section of the wrecked timbers and discover that the whole inside is eaten clean away the apparently solid logs of which the rest of the house is built are now mere cylinders of bark and through the thickest of them you could push your little finger furniture tables chairs chests of drawers everything made of wood is inevitably attacked and in a single night a strong trunk is often riddled through and through and turned into matchwood there is no limit in fact to the depredation by these insects and they will eat books or leather or cloth or anything and in many parts of africa i believe if a man lay down to sleep with a wooden leg it would be a heap of sawdust in the morning so much feared is this insect now that no one in certain parts of india and africa ever attempts to travel with such a thing as a wooden trunk on the tanganyika plateau i have camped on ground which was as hard as adamant and as innocent of white ants apparently as the pavement of st paul's and wakened next morning to find a stout wooden box almost gnawed to pieces leather portmanteaus share the same fate and the only substances which seem to defy the marauders are iron and tin but what has this to do with earth or with agriculture the most important point in the work of the white ant remains to be noted i have already said that the white ant is never seen why he should have such a repugnance to being looked at is at first sight a mystery seeing that he himself is stone blind but his coyness is really due to the desire for self-protection for the moment his juicy body shows itself above ground there are a dozen enemies waiting to devour it and yet the white ant can never procure any food until it comes above ground nor will it meet the case for the insect to come to the surface under the shadow of night night in the tropics so far as animal life is concerned is as the day it is the great feeding time the great fighting time the carnival of the carnivores and of all beasts birds and insects of prey from the least to the greatest it is clear then that darkness is no protection to the white ant and yet without coming out of the ground it cannot live how does it solve the difficulty it takes the ground out along with it i have seen white ants working on the top of a high tree and yet they were underground 
they took up some of the ground with them to the treetop, just as the Eskimo heap up snow, building it into the low tunnel huts in which they live, so the white ants collect earth, only in this case not from the surface, but from some depth underneath the ground, and plaster it into tunneled ways. Occasionally these run along the ground, but more often mount in endless ramifications to the top of trees, meandering along every branch and twig, and here and there debouching into large covered chambers which occupy half the girth of the trunk. Millions of trees in some districts are thus fantastically plastered over with tubes, galleries and chambers of earth, and many pounds weight of subsoil must be brought up for the mining of even a single tree. The building material is conveyed by the insects up a central pipe with which all the galleries communicate, and which at the downward end connects with a series of subterranean passages leading deep into the earth. The method of building the tunnels and covered ways is as follows. At the foot of a tree the tiniest hole cautiously opens in the ground close to the bark. A small head appears, with a grain of earth clasped in its jaws. Against the tree trunk this earth grain is deposited, and the head is withdrawn. Presently it reappears with another grain of earth. This is laid beside the first, rammed tight against it, and again the builder descends underground for more. The third grain is not placed against the tree, but against the former grain. A fourth, a fifth, and a sixth follow, and the plan of the foundation begins to suggest itself as soon as these are in position. The stones or grains or pellets of earth are arranged in a semicircular wall, the termite, now assisted by three or four others, standing in the middle between the sheltering wall and the tree, and working briskly with head and mandible to strengthen the position. The wall, in fact, forms a small moon rampart, and as it grows higher and higher, it soon becomes evident that it is going to grow from a low battlement into a long perpendicular tunnel running up the side of the tree. The workers, safely ensconced inside, are now carrying up the structure with great rapidity, disappearing in turn as soon as they have laid their stone and rushing off to bring up another. The way in which the building is done is extremely cautious, and one could watch the movement of these wonderful little masons by the hour. Each stone as it is brought to the top is first of all covered with mortar. Of course, without this the whole tunnel would crumble into dust before reaching the height of half an inch, but the termite pours over the stone a moist sticky secretion, turning the grain round and round with its mandibles until the whole is covered with slime. Then it places the stone with great care upon the top of the wall, works it about vigorously for a moment or two, until it is well jammed into its place, and then starts off instantly for another load. Peering over the growing wall, one soon discovers one, two, or more termites of a somewhat larger build, considerably longer, and with a very different arrangement of the parts of the head, and especially of the mandibles. These important-looking individuals saunter about the rampart in the most leisurely way, but yet with a certain air of business, as if perhaps the one was the master of works and the other the architect. 
but closer observation suggests that they are in no wise superintending operations, nor in any immediate way contributing to the structure, for they take not the slightest notice either of the workers or the works. They are posted there in fact as sentries, and there they stand, or promenade about, at the mouth of every tunnel, like Sister Anne, to see if anybody is coming. Sometimes somebody does come, in the shape of another ant, the real ant this time, not a defenceless neuropteron, but some valiant and belted knight from the warlike Formicidae. Singly or in troops, this rapacious little insect, fearless in its chitinous coat of mail, charges down the tree trunk, its antennae waving defiance to the enemy and its cruel mandibles thirsting for termite blood. The worker white ant is a poor defenceless creature, and blind and unarmed would fall an immediate prey to these well-drilled banditti, who forage about in every tropical forest in unnumbered legion. But at the critical moment, like Goliath from the Philistines, the soldier termite advances to the fight. With a few sweeps of its scythe-like jaws it clears the ground, and while the attacking party is carrying off its dead, the builders, unconscious of the fray, quietly continue their work. To every hundred workers in a white ant colony, which numbers many thousands of individuals, there are perhaps two of these fighting men. The division of labor here is very wonderful, and the fact that besides these two specialized forms there are in every nest two other kinds of the same insect, the kings and queens, shows the remarkable height to which civilization in these communities has attained. But where is this tunnel going to, and what object have the insects in view in ascending this lofty tree? Thirty feet from the ground, across innumerable forks, at the end of a long branch, are a few feet of dead wood. How the ants know it is there, how they know its sap has dried up, and that it is now fit for the termite's food, is a mystery. Possibly they do not know, and are only prospecting on the chance. The fact that they sometimes make straight for the decaying limb argues in these instances a kind of definite instinct, but on the other hand the fact that in most cases the whole tree, in every branch and limb is covered with termite tunnels, would show perhaps that they work most commonly on speculation, while the number of abandoned tunnels, ending on a sound branch in a cul-de-sac, proves how often they must suffer the usual disappointments of all such adventurers. The extent to which these insects carry on their tunneling is quite incredible, until one has seen it in nature with his own eyes. The tunnels are perhaps about the thickness of a small-sized gas pipe, but there are junctions here and there of large dimensions, and occasionally patches of earthwork are found, embracing nearly the whole trunk for some feet. The outside of these tunnels, which are never quite straight, but wander irregularly along stem and branch, resembles in texture a coarse sandpaper, and the color, although this naturally varies with the soil, is usually a reddish-brown. The quantity of earth and mud plastered over a single tree is often enormous, and when one thinks that it is not only an isolated specimen here and there that is frescoed in this way, but often all the trees of a forest, 
some idea will be formed of the magnitude of the operations of these insects and the extent of their influence upon the soil which they are thus ceaselessly transporting from underneath the ground in travelling through the great forests of the rocky mountains or of the western states the broken branches and fallen trunks strewing the ground breast high with all sorts of decaying litter frequently make locomotion impossible to attempt to ride through these western forests with their meshwork of interlocked branches and decaying trunks is often out of the question and one has to dismount and drag his horse after him as if he were clambering through a woodyard. But in an African forest not a fallen branch is seen. One is struck at first at a certain clean look about the great forests of the interior, a novel and unaccountable cleanness, as if the forest bed was carefully swept and dusted daily by unseen elves. And so indeed it is scavengers of a hundred kinds remove decaying animal matter from the carcass of a fallen elephant to the broken wing of a gnat eating it or carrying out of sight and burying it in the deodorizing earth and these countless millions of termites perform a similar function for the vegetable world making away with all plants and trees all stems twigs and tissues the moment the finger of decay strikes the signal Constantly in these woods one comes across what appear to be sticks and branches and bundles of faggots, but when closely examined they are seen to be mere casts in mud. From these hollow tubes, which preserve the original form of the branch down to the minutest knot or fork, the ligneous tissue is often entirely removed, while others are met with in all stages of demolition. There is the section of an actual specimen which is not yet completely destroyed and from which the mode of attack may be easily seen. The insects start apparently from two centers. One company attacks the inner bark, which is the favorite morsel, leaving the coarse outer bark untouched, or, more usually, replacing it with grains of earth, atom by atom, as they eat it away. The inner bark is gnawed off likewise as they go along, but the woody tissue beneath is allowed to remain to form a protective sheath for the second company who begin work at the centre this second contingent eats its way outward and onward leaving a thin tube of the outer wood to the last as props to the mine till they have finished the main excavation when a fallen trunk lying upon the ground is the object of attack the outer cylinder is frequently left quite intact and it is only when one tries to drag it off to his campfire that he finds to his disgust that he is dealing with a mere hollow tube, a few lines in thickness, filled up with mud. But the works above ground represent only a part of the labours of these slow-moving but most industrious of creatures. The arboreal tubes are only the prolongation of a much more elaborate system of subterranean tunnels, which extend over large areas and mine the earth sometimes to a depth of many feet or even yards. The material excavated from these underground galleries and from the succession of domed chambers, used as nurseries or granaries, to which they lead, has to be thrown out upon the surface. And it is from these materials that the huge anthills are reared, 
which form so distinctive a feature of the African landscape. These heaps and mounds are so conspicuous that they may be seen for miles, and so numerous are they, and so useful as cover to the sportsman, that without them in certain districts hunting would be impossible. The first things indeed to strike the traveller in entering the interior are the mounds of the white ant, now dotting the plain in groups like a small cemetery, now rising into mounds, singly or in clusters, each thirty or forty feet in diameter and ten or fifteen in height, or again standing out against the sky like obelisks, their bare sides carved and fluted into all sorts of fantastic shapes. In India these ant-heaps seldom attain a height of more than a couple of feet, but in Central Africa they form veritable hills and contain many tons of earth. The brick houses of the Scotch Mission Station on Lake Nyasa have all been built out of a single ant's nest, and the quarry from which the material has been derived forms a pit beside the settlement some dozen feet in depth. A supply of bricks as large again could probably still be taken from this convenient depot, and onwards to Victoria Nyanza have been similarly indebted to the labours of the termites. In South Africa the Zulus and Kafirs pave all their huts with white ant earth, and during the Boer War our troops in Pretoria, by scooping out the interior from the smaller beehive-shaped ant heaps and covering the top with clay, constantly used them as ovens. These ant-heaps may be said to abound over the whole interior of Africa, and there are several distinct species. The most peculiar, as well as the most ornate, is a small variety from one to two feet in height, which occurs in myriads along the shores of Lake Tanganyika. It is built in symmetrical tiers, and resembles a pile of small rounded hats, one above another, the rims depending like eaves and sheltering the body of the hill from rain. To estimate the amount of earth per acre raised from the waterline of the subsoil by white ants would not in some districts be an impossible task, and it would be found, probably, that the quantity at least equals that manipulated annually in temperate regions by the earthworm. These mounds, however, are more than mere waste heaps. Like the corresponding region underground, they are built into a meshwork of tunnels, galleries and chambers, where the social interests of the community are attended to. The most spacious of these chambers, usually far underground, is very properly allocated to the head of the society, the queen. The queen termite is a very rare insect, and as there are seldom more than one or at most two to a colony, and as the royal apartments are hidden far in the earth, few persons have ever seen a queen, and indeed most, if they did happen to come across it, from its very singular appearance would refuse to believe that it had any connection with white ants. It possesses indeed the true termite head, but there the resemblance to the other members of the family stops, for the size of the head bears about the same proportion to the rest of the body as does the tuft on his glengarry bonnet to a six-foot highlander. The phenomenal corpulence of the royal body in the case of the queen termite is possibly due in part to want of exercise, 
for once seated upon her throne, she never stirs to the end of her days. She lies there, a large, loathsome, cylindrical package, two or three inches long, in shape like a sausage, and as white as a bolster. Her one duty in life is to lay eggs, and it must be confessed she discharges her function with complete success, for in a single day her progeny often amounts to many thousands, and for months this enormous fecundity never slackens. The body increases slowly in size, and through the transparent skin the long-folded ovary may be seen, with the eggs, impelled by a peristaltic motion, passing onward for delivery to the workers, who are waiting to carry them to the nurseries, where they are hatched. Assiduous attention, meantime, is paid to the queen by other workers, who feed her diligently, with much self-denial stuffing her with morsel after morsel from their own jaws. A guard of honour in the shape of a few of the larger soldier aunts is also in attendance, as a last and almost unnecessary precaution. In addition, finally, to the soldiers, workers, and queen, the royal chamber has also one other inmate, the king. He is a very ordinary-looking insect, about the same size as the soldiers, but the arrangement of the parts of the head and body is widely different, and like the queen, he is furnished with eyes. End of section 21